welcome back to another fantastic episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm one of your hosts, Nell Shamrell Harrington. I'm an engineer at Mozilla, and with me is my co-host, Tyler. Tyler, how's it going? Hey, everybody. I'm going, it's going good with me. Thanks. Thanks for asking. Great. Well, glad to have you here because we have got a large number of guests this time. Uh, we've got uh, three uh, individuals uh, participating with us as well on the topic of chaos engineering. And I'd like to go ahead and uh, Colton, why don't you introduce yourself first? Hi, my name is Colton Andrus. I'm CEO and one of the founders of Gremlin. Uh, I grew up dealing with reliable systems at Amazon before joining Netflix. Saw a lot of good value there, was a, a big believer in it. And so I ended up founding Gremlin with Forney, as he's lovingly referred to, and uh, Tammy, who joined us very early on. Awesome. Well, Forney, let's go to you next. All right. Well, my name is Matthew Forniseri, but as Colton alluded to, I go by Forney. Um, yeah, I actually got my start out of college at Amazon, working on you know the availability team, keeping the uh, Amazon retail website up and reliable. Uh, you know, shortly thereafter, got given a team where uh, I had to write a weekly email to Jeff Bezos. So you learn to uh, make things reliable pretty quickly. So that's that's my background. Awesome. Uh, Tammy, how about you? Welcome. Thanks so much. Great to be here. My name is Tammy and um, I'm a principal site reliability engineer at Gremlin. And yeah, I've been on the Gremlin team for over two years now. I absolutely love it. I, I joined them um, and I was one of the first 10 employees. And before that, I previously worked at Dropbox as a site reliability engineering manager for uh, databases and also block storage. And a lot of what I've done when I've joined Gremlin has been trying to figure out, like, how can I help other people do chaos engineering and do site reliability engineering work? Because I got a lot of great results doing it myself, like a 10x reduction in incidents. Uh, so, yeah, that's me. Today's podcast is sponsored by UpCloud. Is your website running slow? Supercharge your hosting performance by deploying on the world's fastest cloud infrastructure. UpCloud offers superior cloud servers and advanced scalability, instant backup snapshots, and easy-to-use control panel. Fully featured API and a ton of integration options and managing partners. Pricing starts at only $5 a month with enough performance options to host any website or app, all backed by 24-7 live in-house support. You can get started today with a free trial using promo code DevChatTV at upcloud.com slash signup. They'll give you a $25 credit to get you going. Remember, upcloud.com slash sign up with promo code devchattv. Uh, awesome. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, let's, you know, to get started, let's, let's talk about what exactly is chaos engineering. I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of chaos monkey, uh, at Netflix, but chaos and engineering, it seems to have evolved into this you know, subfield of DevOps or subfield of engineering. Uh, why don't you tell us, uh, our panelists from Gremlin, what, how do you define chaos engineering? Yeah, so the way I always describe it when I'm home for the holidays or I'm, I'm interacting with my family is to use a couple analogies. Um, the analogy I like best is that of the vaccine, because it's a little counterintuitive up front. Hey, we're going to cause some harm, but ultimately by causing that harm, our bodies are able to learn and adapt and protect against that type of failure in the future. And so it's a little bit like it's a little bit like the vaccine. The other analogy I like is that of the fire drill. Uh, there's a reason most of us grew up running fire drills, and that's because when something you know catastrophic or or an emergency happens, 
we don't want everyone to run around with their hair on fire. We want people to react calmly and safely, not to make things worse, but to be able to make them better. And as a call leader and somebody that's spent a lot of time carrying a pager and, and dealing with those outage calls, it's nice to have that opportunity to practice. So those are those are both also influences about why I care deeply about this approach. And one thing just to add to that, you know, I think one of the common misconceptions about the term chaos engineering is that it's just random chaos. It's not actually it at all. It's, you know, very controlled chaos. It's it much more closely resembles, you know, the scientific method where you have something that you're trying to either prove or disprove a hypothesis. And you do that by injecting failure to see, you know, whether or not your system is actually resilient against these these bad behaviors that crop up in the real world. Uh, Tammy, could you give us a bit of an SRE perspective on this? Yeah, um, to me, the reason why I really like chaos engineering is because it's been a great way for me to reduce incidents. And one of the ways that you can do that is you can actually look at previous incidents that have happened, and then you write up your postmortem, you then do your fixes, so you make sure the action items are done, but then what happens next, right? What do we do after we've written the postmortem and we check the actions item, action items off? We just sort of, you know, hope. And we all know in the SRE world that hope is not a strategy. Um, so what we say with chaos engineering is you can actually reproduce that incident and you can make sure that you wouldn't be affected by it if it was to happen again. So that's like a really cool way to inject failure to prove that all of your work that you've done after the postmortem process is actually like awesome. Fantastic. Now, let's say someone's hearing about this says, I want to bring chaos engineering to my org. Uh, you all, all three of you alluded to this. That doesn't mean you're going to have one of your employees go into your data center and necessarily start yanking Ethernet cords. Uh, if someone wants to get started with chaos engineering, wants that resilience, where would they start? So I think it's it's an interesting question because there's a lot of different um, problems that you can solve with chaos engineering. We spoke about the fire drill and analogy, and that's really about how do you train teams? How do you prepare them to be on call to build that muscle memory? How do you ensure that your alerts and your uh, monitoring software is working correctly? And how do you cut down on the noise? You know, how do you how do you filter out the cruft and ensure it's only engaging you at the right times? Those are both more process oriented approaches where I've seen chaos engineering give a lot of insight and teach people where they can improve. And then it's interesting because if you're, you know, if you're a larger company, maybe one of the things you care about is whether your database can be restored or failed over correctly. Perhaps you're running in multiple cloud regions or in multiple cloud providers. And you need to ensure that you can fail over gracefully between those, or you can run an active, 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 passive scenario. And so those are kind of broader, more in my opinion, in the disaster recovery testing world use cases. But the one, if there's one use case people walk away with that I think is the most valuable, it's that we've all built distributed systems that rely on someone else's system. And what happens when that other system slows down or breaks or fails? And there's been a few you know, really public examples. One I use, usually refer to as the S3 outage from a couple of years back. You know, we all hope that, you know, S3 is a non-critical dependency, but a lot of people learn that day, oh, we depend upon that for deploying. We depend upon that for caching. We depend upon that to serve our website. And so something that may not have been on the forefront of, of our minds when building was, well, what happens if this dependency fails? And so that's the one to me that is the 
every every team should you know map out what their dependencies are and go test what happens if they fail. That will get you so much mileage. Yeah, I've uh, I've told the story on the podcast before, but I a few years ago I was working on a major uh, election campaign, and on election day, one of our cloud services appeared to go down. It turned out it wasn't necessarily down all the way; it was severely degraded. But we were just you know panicking because there was absolutely nothing we could do about it. In uh, elections, that you don't. Ne- usually you don't have a chance to redo them. So I thought, you know, anytime I'm working on something that critical, I've got to have some other source uh, service that I can fail over to and know that I can fail over to it. And the fact that what you just said really resonates, I think, it's knowing that you can fail over to it. And it kind of, you know, it alludes back to what Tammy said as well. You can't just hope that it's going to happen. And the only way you can really do this is by, you know, practicing in the real world. One thing I just I wanted to say, I thought it was kind of funny. Now you said, you know, you don't just run through a data center and pull Ethernet cords out of the wall. That's kind of how this whole practice started back awesome. at Amazon with Jesse Robbins, the master of disaster, just running through yanking cords out of the wall. So, you know, we've abstracted that up and we do it in a little bit more of a graceful way these days with software. But that is sort of where it all kind of came from. And, you know, it's it kind of reminds me of engineering practices where, you know, you go hand simulate things first and then you figure out what works, what doesn't. And then you go build out more advanced solutions. Right. Awesome. Yeah. And I had a question that, that came to mind as you guys have been discussing it so far, um, because as you mentioned, Tammy, you're taking more of the reliability aspect and. I'm thinking, okay, so where where does the line for chaos engineering go and reliability engineering? How much is uh, the Venn diagram do they overlap? Is it pretty much two two circles or one, or is there or is there some space there? Um, so yeah, the main way that I always think about it, you know, when I'm working on um, you know working on complex systems, distributed systems, you know, very critical systems, is I'm always focused on results. Like, what can I do that's going to get me very impactful, positive results for customers? And to me, like, the main thing that I want to do is, one, like, you know, reduce incidents. The best way that I've found to do that is by injecting failure using chaos engineering. Um, So that's part of what you need to do as, as an SRE, right? Like, you're often helping everybody actually learn how to better manage incidents, how to react to incidents, how to be calm. The other thing that I actually created that no one else in the industry was talking about was the idea of on-call training using chaos engineering. So that's something that I pioneered at Dropbox. And yeah, everyone internally was like, wow, how come we've never been trained to do on-call before? That is really weird. You know, it's a strange thing. Like, why does that not happen? You know, usually you just get thrown a pager and they say, good luck. And then you have to just do it. Um, So I think like, you know, these days, like that's really not an effective way to train people. And we can do a lot better. And a really good way is to, yeah, look through past incidents or, you know, when you've got someone new joining, say it's a new grad, someone who's just graduated from university and they're going to be on call for critical systems, that's happening a lot more these days. Like they want to be trained up. Um, they want you to be able to help them and guide them. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm seeing lots and lots of people doing SRE work these days and that's really exciting to see the field growing. Uh, we also run a yearly conference called ChaosConf. And we actually had um, Dave Renson, who runs like Google's CRE program, that, that's customer reliability engineering. He spoke at ChaosCon. And yeah, that was really great too. So it's definitely an interesting area where, you know, all the SREs are really like, you know, that are making use of chaos engineering. They're getting great results across a number of different areas. One of my other favorite areas is, you know, 
in terms of like looking after databases, I was running, you know, 10,000 database machines. That's a lot of machines with like four engineers. So obviously it's heavily automated, but you need to make sure that restores work, that clones work, that promotions work. Everything has to work all the time. So the best way to make sure that it does is by injecting failure. And then we, like, I love metrics. So I'll measure everything. How long does it take for a restore to happen? How long does it take for a clone to happen? How long does it take for a backup to happen? And sometimes you'll notice issues when you actually like stop a restore midway or stop a clone midway. So that's just a way to really dive into the details and get some big wins. Um, and yeah, I mean, I never had a Sev Zero incident after I started working at Dropbox and there were a few before I joined. So, you know, it's my big secret to success, actually. So the secret right. to success is chaos, it sounds like. Yeah, I like, I like the tagline for the company of the failure as a service that you provide the failure as a service. Yes. And the service that it provides is the education. Um, and so, yeah, I really, I really dig that. I, I worked on a client recently where we were doing it from the software side of thing. And, uh, when I say software side, I mean like developing applications. So you have an application and you need to do quality assurance on a QA. And so, you know, this now in today's world, we have people writing and building the platforms and the operations side of things, engineering that has moved into that, um, DevOps engineering, reliability engineering, et cetera. And so, yes, of course, this, this is proactive QA. Do you guys do it more? Do you ever do it on a production system instead of a sandbox system? Or where do you draw the line for, for that type of testing? So obviously, I'll give you my take on that. But I think that the, the commentary on QA is actually quite interesting. QA has evolved in the last 10 and 15 years. You know, when we're doing waterfall deployment and, you know, a few deployments a year, we could invest heavily in ensuring that deployment was blessed before it made it out the door. In the world where we've decentralized our teams and it's more the world of you build it, you own it, you operate it, you operate it. And as a good engineer, you're expected to be doing some, some degree of test-driven development or testing in your pipeline. In a way, whose responsibility is the overall quality of this distributed system? And so to me, that's really the need that needs to be filled by chaos engineering. And so to your earlier question, you know, reliability engineering, resilience engineering, chaos engineering, to me, I'm not caught up on the nomenclature. The intent is that our customers have a great experience, that our systems operate well, and that our engineers aren't woken up in the middle of the night that they can sleep and come in and do, do their hard thought work, you know, without, without um, being sleep deprived. And so that's, that's really this trend I've been noticing is that that forcing function on the overall system, you know, we may be doing this at the service level, the team level to make sure we handle the failures of our dependencies that are alerting and monitoring work well, that our team knows how to get engaged and, and handle an incident. And it is, it's software and people and processes. It, it crosses all lines. You can't decouple them. It, they're, they're, they're one and the same in essence. There might be different approaches we take, but we have to view them all. We have to uh, account for them all. And so this, this concept that we can go into our live systems, our production systems, and ultimately perform the last stage of, of quality assurance is kind of the what's well, maybe a debatable statement, but it's the missing piece of DevOps as we're practicing it today. We do all this hard work to build, deploy, to get it ready. You know, often we're canarying it as we're deploying it into production. And then we kind of, we push it out there and, and we hope 
you know, and, and it's, Hey, my piece worked. Why didn't your piece work? And Hey, you know, we did all the right things or we didn't have enough time, but that's where, you know, if there's a team or, or a group of vested uh, of engineers with the vested interest go out and do that testing and production, they can verify that the core use cases and failovers work correctly. So take me a bit through your, your products. I know you're, chaos engineering as a service you someone comes to your website what, what are they looking for what what kind of experience are they having what can they do uh with uh, the gremlin product yeah absolutely um so our product is host-based so you know there's a, an install step and then once they've got the product installed on their host whether it be um, you know, bare metal, uh, a VM uh, in the you know, a container or Kubernetes, they're able to get up and running right away. And so um, the, once they're installed, we actually have, you know, a, the ability to recommend to them particular scenarios that they can start with. I know you asked a little bit earlier about where you start, right? And so there is sort of a baseline that we can get people to and we recommend to them, you know, here are the base things that you should be running. Um, we integrate, you know, with with every with all the cloud providers, so we can do that right out of the box. And yeah, yeah. And so to to build on that, some of those scenarios are like what we've been discussing. We need to verify that we can handle region evacuation. We need to verify that we can handle a failed dependency. Maybe we need something simple to start with. Do, do our auto scaling rules kick in when we need them? And do the new hosts come and go fast enough that our customers aren't impacted? And so those scenarios are really us taking, you know, what we've observed from our customer base and our experience in industry and trying to condense down the core set of things any team would get value from. The underlying pieces are, are the building blocks of failure that we can cause. And so that might be consuming resources. So let's let's take up a bunch of threads. Let's take up a bunch of CPU. Let's eat up a bunch of memory and simulate, you know, a memory leak. Let's create some IO overhead. There's a set of things that are related to state management on the host. You know, what happens if a process dies? Do we have that good cron babysitter? Does it kick in and, and bring it back fast enough? Are we rotating logs correctly? Um, what happens if time changes? You know, we're, we're coming up on daylight savings again. And, you know, there's always an outage related to some tricky bit of, you know, time logic is the worst. <laughs> if you've written a lot of code, if you if you remember early versions of Jota time or the like, you know that... There's all sorts of, of subtleties and what can go wrong. And then that last category is really things that go wrong at the network level. So I can't talk to a dependency or I can, but it's slowed. And so maybe I'm introducing a second of latency or 100 milliseconds to help find that threshold, to find the elbow where things start to fail over. Um, what happens if DNS fails or there's a lot of packet loss? And so we're really trying to give customers the building blocks to recreate any failure they might have experienced the framework to build those scenarios and share them with their teams and then helping them to run them and measure the outcome so that they know whether or not their systems are resilient to those types of failures. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv jobbook. That's devchat.tv jobbook.
Got it. So just digging in, you know, just a, a hair deeper. So I know there's there's a host machine. Are there agents running on different machine or other machines that that host machine talks to? Uh, how, how does it kind of work on a tactical framework level? Yeah. So the the agent is either host level or it can be deployed as a container. Or we actually gotcha. have an application level approach if you're doing serverless or you want to get up into your UI code, and that gives people the building blocks. Um, typically you're installing them on your application. The beauty and the detriment of the network is a network failure. You know, we don't have to go break S3 to see what happens if S3 goes down. We can just drop all our traffic to S3 for a period of time. And that kind of dovetails. There was a, an element of this earlier, but, you know, to go to production, to do this testing, we were doing it to prevent outages. And so we never want to go do it in a haphazard way that introduces more risk. And so one of the core concepts is that of the blast radius. We always want to run the smallest experiment that will teach us something. And if we can break a single host and find a major production outage bug in staging, you know, great. That's just, it's efficient, it's efficient engineering. Um, and so what the pattern we've seen be successful is, you know, I'll start with a single host. If that works, you know, if it works as expected, then I'll go to three or five or 10 hosts. I'll grow it up until I'm running in the entirety of that environment. And then if I'm ready to go to production, I'll reset that blast radius back down. Can I test on a single device, a single user, a single host? And if that works, then I have the trust and confidence to grow that blast radius up to be full scale. And that's important because you, you learn different things at different scales. Like at the small scale, it's did I, did I handle my null pointer exception well? Or you know, do I have a good fallback that gracefully degrades if this service is down? Or can I show some cache data? But at the large scale, you're testing, you know, do I back off of a downstream dependency if they start to go underwater? Do I shed load if I start to go underwater? Um, you know, these, these timeouts and these thread pools and all the configuration, that, that's a, a super important but understated part of our production systems is all the configuration that, that is tuned and makes sure it runs well. And if we've never seen the system under duress, we're tuning for the wrong thing. If we tune for the happy case, we're going to be disappointed because it needs to protect us when things go wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned happy case. Um, you know, it harkens back to the QA models and like this, this is the happy path. And what we expect is we, we've already tested those. And I think what you're saying with chaos engineering is really thinking creatively to break it in, in new ways. Um, to follow up on what Nell's question was just about, it's like, what of the Gremlin platform or, or framework allows you to do some of the things you just mentioned, like uh, being able to do it just containing the blast radius and configure that? Is that something you configure, you know, in the, in the golden language of YAML? This is how we configure everything in DevOps, right? How do you configure that? How do you set the blast radius? What, what are the knobs? And oh, boy, the, the golden language of YAML, I'm respectfully... Uh, and, and this you'll see in my answer in just a moment. I don't think XML and YAML are the answer. I've, I've not heard that before, no. <laughs> so, so one of the things we learned building this at Amazon, me and Matt together, and then we had the opportunity to, to revise some of the tooling at Netflix and build the next generation, is if you want people to do, do the right thing, you need to make it easy. And so how does our product guide in that? We have a nice visualization that shows you the percentage of your environment that you're targeting when you're executing these attacks or these experiments. And so that allows us to guide people. Hey, 
this is your first experiment. Maybe you shouldn't run it at 100% of production. You know, maybe you should start at 1% of staging. And then, you know, as you add in more and more, and, and of course, there's tags and ways to, to describe our environment. So I might go from a host to a zone to a region. I might do it by service. But, but helping engineers to understand before they click go, what the potential side effects might be is just helping them with that, that mental model. Yeah, and that's built right into the product. You know, what the scenarios I alluded to earlier have different steps. And so like Colton mentioned, you start with the smallest step. So maybe one host out of this particular service. And then I think Tyler, you asked about what knobs do you turn? Well, we support basically saying, cool, now attack 25% of it, now 50, now 75. And slowly growing that up so that you can see that, you know, you can see the impact as it grows and as you you expand the blast radius. Does it help uh, to, to dovetail into what uh, Tammy was saying before? Do you have a way to then take that data and put it into a metric to, to start to do the math? Or is there a report that's generated or? Yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, so today, you know, it's there's a lot of moving pieces we need to validate in the process. And so it might be, you know, is my run book up to date? Did someone get engaged correctly? You know, did, was the dashboard measuring the right thing? And, and so there's some of those what I would call side effects. Really, I feel chaos engineering is the capstone that helps us to actually tune and validate that those uh, process pieces work correctly. Um, and then once we're once we're done running the experiment, you know, what is a successful chaos experiment? It's a bit of a fun question because if things break, well, that's kind of the point. You want to find the things that break. You're making progress, but it's also nice if you run an experiment and everything behaves the way you expect. And so what we what we ended with were kind of three criteria to help grade an experiment. Was it detected? So did our monitoring catch it? And were we alerted and engaged correctly? Um, was it um, was it expected? Did the system fail in the way that we thought it would? Again, a lot of what happens with chaos engineering is uncovering unknown unknowns and unknown side effects. And so it's okay if it wasn't expected, but the number of times I've heard you know, a customer or a team say, we're going to run this, we're going to fail this over, nothing's going to happen. And, you know, two minutes into the experiment, we're hitting the halt button because something else happened. And we're like, whoa, hold on. That's not that's not what we expected to happen. Why did that happen? And that lets us dig in. And then the last one is, can we mitigate the outcome? You know, where possible, we want to gracefully degrade and turn, you know, a SEV1 into a SEV2 or turn a, a critical failure into a non-critical failure. So that's, that's our best guess, but, you know, love to hear your thoughts. If you've got recommendations, there's still a lot to learn in this space. Yeah, I'm thinking, uh, you know, harkening back to what you were talking about, Tammy, earlier about uh, setting up on-call training. I can't think of a better, uh, you know, resource to find what people need to be trained on or what the organization needs to prioritize in terms of training it, other than making things go wrong and seeing what happens. Exactly. I think the best way to learn is by doing. And we've heard a lot from the community that, um, for example, you know, maybe they'll say, my, my aspiration is that I'd like to use Gremlin to be able to improve MTD, MTDD, mean time to detection. So maybe it's just taking them a really long time to even detect incidents. Maybe they're not sure if their monitoring is even picking up that incidents are occurring, the right person's not getting paged, all of these types of things. Um, so what we can do is we can actually, we have an amazing customer success team as well. Um, and they work hand in hand with our customers. We have a lot of enterprise customers that have like large scale systems, you know, 
is like finance companies, like people, you know, people care about money. That's like a big thing. I used to work at the National Australia Bank and that's actually how I learned about chaos engineering in the first place back in 2013. We actually implemented Chaos Monkey on production because we moved to AWS. And Chaos Monkey, you know, all that does is shut down servers, but it was a good way to practice. And the whole thing was because all the engineers were getting paged all the time. We weren't sure if we were able to pick up issues that were occurring. Like MTDD was very bad. The right people weren't getting routed um, for the different alerts that were firing. So, yeah, we did that and it was a nice first step. Um, but yeah, lots of interesting things have happened in that space. And actually, NAB was the first finance company in the world to do chaos engineering. It's amazing. You know, I moved to America after that and I was talking to all these other big finance companies and they're like, wow, that's cool that you did that there back in 2013. Totally makes sense. Um, it's a good way to do it. And the other really interesting thing, I think, if you think about, you know, on-call training and using chaos engineering to do that, um, using Gremlin to actually trigger issues, make sure that, you know, you're detecting it fast and it's going to the right person. You're able to actually identify that there's an issue. Um, I went a few weeks ago to a hackathon to actually be a mentor. And it was a really good learning experience for me because I hadn't been to one in years. I used to mentor at them like six years ago. And um, it was awesome because we had a Gremlin table there. And all of the students totally 100% understood the need for chaos engineering because they were like, well, I'm building this software. Of course, I want it to be reliable. And then I was like, okay, like, you know, what are you building? Okay, they say, I'm building an application that uses three different APIs. And then I'd say, all right, what do you think you might need to do um, to make it more reliable? They're like, well, if one of my APIs doesn't work, I need a backup. And I'm like, totally. Like, they get it and they have ownership for it and they want to make sure that they're building the most reliable software possible and they want to prove that it's reliable. So, like, I am absolutely loving the next generation of engineers like, I can't wait for them to start work. You know, it's going to be like one or two years and they'll all be coming into all these, you know, giant companies all over the world. And, you know, I think everyone's going to be really lucky to pick them up because they have a great mindset. Yeah. Something I've occasionally wondered about, you know, it's kind of kind of the startup life. When you're bringing a newish kind of engineering or newly defined category of engineering, uh you know, it's easy to bring it to smaller stage startups who are very, usually very nimble, very agile. But when you bring it to large financial institutions or large government institutions, it's a lot more challenging. So how has that been for you, bringing the concept of chaos engineering into these big bureaucratic institutions? Well, the interesting thing for me, like from my experience is that they 100% are on board because they just know how important it is. So, I mean, I always found that at the National Australia Bank, we were always trying to innovate. We are always trying to do great work. Um, like, I mean, I got to work with so many amazing people that always just wanted to do better. So, yeah, there really wasn't much bureaucracy. It was more like, hey, like this is something that we saw Netflix is doing in America. Maybe we should try it because it might actually enable us to provide a better customer experience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's tough. If you've got like, you know, Dropbox has like 500 million users, you just know that you have so many users, you need to be able to service them and give them a good experience. Um, when it's a bank, maybe you have like a few million users, um, so not as many, but they care a lot about the service that they're getting. And, you know, obviously, like you can't just drop people's transactions or have duplicate transactions in their bank account or have money go missing from their bank account. Like, 
that's why you really do just go, all right, I'm going to try and see what I can do to um, fix these issues. And yeah, to me, like injecting failure is the best way to do it. I think the approach as well to get really good results is, you know, um, what Colton said about thinking about it like a, a flu injection. So, and also, you know, thinking about it a lot like, you know, very fine grain detailed surgery like it's like sometimes in a bank it might be more like heart surgery like you really need to know a lot about the system um so often it's just finding the right people like and at banks and that's actually pretty easy sometimes you've got a lot of people there that have 30 plus years experience so that's how you can actually make a big impact it's getting the right people together in the room um and something that we often do with our customers is get them to whiteboard you know when was the last time you got in a room with folks and said hey like let's actually just whiteboard out our system draw out all the dependencies upstream downstream and figure out what we can do to improve this um so i think that's a great exercise it's funny you mentioned uh financial institutes tammy because i logged into one of mine today and it said i had zero dollars and then no no none of my accounts anymore and it was terrifying oh gosh that is terrifying exactly uh, it's particularly timely that you mentioned that yeah, we're chaos engineering that for you. It's just yeah, you you would react to it. Exactly. Don't don't even worry about it. No, but um, I, I think just sort of back to your to your question now. Like on the larger scheme of things, you know, when we started the company, it was still the question that people were asking was still very much like, what is chaos engineering? And as we've kind of gone along in our company's history, we've seen that paradigm definitely shift. And you know, for the first year it was what is it? The next year, it was more, why would I do this? There's already plenty of chaos as is. This seems kind of crazy. And it's really shifted to like, okay, I get it. I know why I would like to do this. Just tell me how to do it. And so we, we were seeing a lot less pushback from, from these bigger companies, like you mentioned, uh, in terms of like, I don't know why I would ever do this. Things are already crazy enough. You know, they, the, the messaging that, hey, we need to go out and proactively do this so that, you know, we're not getting woken up at 3 a.m. and trying to, to solve it, you know, kind of as we wipe the sleep out of our eyes is, is starting to really make a lot more sense to people. They also really don't want to be on the front page of the New York Times or anything else without a massive <laughs> failure. Well, it's been it's been a rough, rough year, honestly, for tech outages. I have a slide that I, I use in my talks that speaks about recent outages. And like, even if I've given that talk two or three weeks ago, there's always a new one to go grab. There's a headline that I thought kind of captured it last year. It was tech crunches. It was a bad month for the internet. And to me, you know, it's validation about, about what our company's mission is. You know, we care, we as a society care about the internet. It, it's how we communicate. It's how we do business. It's how we travel. It's, it's permeated all aspects of life. And so if we can help improve that experience so that a loved, you know, someone can make it home to their loved ones over the holidays or someone's able to, to take care of their finances more efficiently, you know, that's, a, that's an important service that we can help provide. And that's really what, what gets me out of bed in the morning. What's, what's important to me is that, you know, we can help, help our customers and help society have a more reliable internet. Over, over the past, you know, few years, I think the, the expectations, you know, the public has of companies has changed quite a bit, you know, not even 10 years ago, there was still scheduled downtime and maintenance windows. And nowadays, you go down for 10 minutes, you're all over Twitter, you know, it's just very different times, you know, and not just that, like, it's, it's, it used to be, you know, hey, I can't make an order, uh, I can't place an order or something like that. But as we really start to evolve into, you know, autonomous vehicles, and start to place more of like our I mean, you know, oftentimes even our health and well-being into, you know, the the, the arms of, of AI and, and all of that, 
we just we need to be a, a bit more proactive in terms of how we approach this. Failing at that sort of level, it can be catastrophic, you know. Got it. So where do you see Gremlin going over the, I won't say the next five years, let's say over the next two years, or you can answer the, the next five years if you wish. Are you are you a Simpsons fan at all? Uh, yes. So there's an episode I love where uh, Homer's the garbage man, and he has this whole song where he's like, can't somebody do it for me? So I think that that typifies where I would love to take the product. You know, in today's world, we can give you the tooling to safely and securely cause these failures and learn from them. But wouldn't it be great if we can get to the world where we can recommend what you should run, we can learn about your system and your environment and your past outages, begin guiding you and how to experiment. What if we can take people out of it and start doing automatic failure testing in the background? You know, how do we, in that spirit of how do you make it easy to do the right thing, how can we really push this forward so that it, it guides us and it leads us instead of it being, you know, the tool that we're pulling along behind us? A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv. And I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show though is React Roundup. And every week we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. I like that question of uh, how do you make it easy to do the right thing? Um, and I think that we've touched on a lot of these different parts. Um, and one of the things I was really responding well to was Tammy's point that training people on how to do it, expecting someone to be a fighter, firefighter, walk out of uh, the street and be a volunteer firefighter, uh, you know, and then there's a fire, right? Is is kind of against all reason and against all logic. You you do need to bring them up to speed. You do need to show them where the hose is. You need to show them what to do. And so, yeah, I, I do I do like that idea that's making it easy. So what what have you guys? What are the trends and the things that you feel like you have made easy over the last little, made it easier to do the right thing in the last few years? Um, and what are the next few things that you actually want to make easy, like more concrete examples? I mean, first and foremost, I think we've just made the process of being able to run a chaos experiment much easier. You know, to date, a lot of what's out there is is really kind of open source and you know, you'll see companies kind of cobble together a couple of them and we'll try to, to create an effective program around that or we'll just write their own scripts or we'll be SSHing onto boxes directly and running them. And so by creating this sort of like centralized ability to have a control plane that controls everything, has safety, security, simplicity built right into it, um, you know, and has... 11, 12 uh, failure modes out the box. Like it just makes it so much easier to get started with a program and, you know, be, be doing it in a safe way, be able to rely upon the software to put in place, you know, safety mechanisms for you. Like, you know, we, we have one safety mechanism called the dead man switch. If you can, if any of our clients ever cannot report back into the, the control plane, they fail open, they kill the, the current attack, they roll it back in a very safe manner. Um, and, you know, frankly, I think, Everybody kind of romanticizes it like, oh, cool, I want to build, you know, write scripts to like go break stuff. But they don't often think about the reverse side of things, which is putting the world back into the right state. 
And so, you know, having that sort of built in out of the box, I think makes it just that much easier to pick up the practice and get going. It reminds me a lot of insecurity, the practice of penetration testing, where, you know, you have some people and I see them on Reddit, I see them other places who are really enthusiastic. Yeah, I want to get into to people's headquarters and break things and steal things and humiliate them. Well, that's maybe the first 10% of the job. The rest of it, and the reason they pay you to do it is teaching them how to avoid that in the future or putting, you know, guards in place to avoid that happening again. Yeah, it's it's all of that that extra work. You know, it's funny, you know, Forney mentioned there's a lot of open source projects, which, you know, is great. It's it's great to see innovation and folks, you know, following their passion and building cool technology. What's missing by far and large from the open source world of chaos engineering is the concept of safety and the concept of security. And they're kind of left as an exercise to the reader. And that's a shame because, you know, we're, we're building a system that, you know, if abused could cause havoc, could cause mayhem. And so, you know, ensuring that you have those checks and balances, it's easy to break stuff. It's harder to put it back into the steady state that it was in beforehand. So certainly I think your, your point is very valid that the pen testing analogy is, is an apt one. We have it a little bit easier, you know, from the outside in, it's the defender's dilemma where, you know, any hole could allow access, could cause problems. You know, in general, we're not dealing with malicious actors. We're dealing with, you know, people that have good intent that, you know, over, over, have an oversight or miss something. And the, the domain of things that can go wrong in the infrastructure platform application level is a little bit better defined. I think another thing too is, um, you know, we, we talk to the community and it really resonates with folks that on-call training just doesn't happen. And that's a great use case for chaos engineering. I think another thing too that's important is you need training for chaos engineering, which we actually built into the Gremlin product. Um, so it actually trains you on how to run your chaos engineering experiments. And the way that we did that was we spoke to people from across the community and asked them like, what kind of experiments do you think would really be valuable to run? And then we created uh, a product feature called Scenarios. And so when you actually log into Gremlin, you'll see that there are specific scenarios that you can run um, that come with Gremlin out of the box. Like, for example, one of them is validate auto-scaling. Like, that's a common incident that occurs for a lot of companies, you know? When you suddenly get a ton of traffic, does your system scale correctly? Like, are you able to actually service all of those different users? Um, so yeah, we actually make it really easy to get trained up on how to do chaos engineering. And that's something that I love. It's, it's funny you should compare, you know, uh, chaos engineering to pen testing now, because I had a very interesting conversation the other day, just in regards to how we think about that, because security, we think about it, you know, as you know, we are a hundred percent secure and we, we say that there are no breaches, but we don't talk about reliability in the same way. Like if we had one outage, you know, like it's not the same thing as like one security failure, but I, I really think that's how we should be thinking about it. We should really be thinking about downtime in the same sort of mentality is like, you want to go for a hundred percent uptime, you know, you want to, you don't want to be, or you want to go for zero percent downtime really, right? The same way you'd go for zero breaches. So it's an interesting analogy, interesting conversation that I had the other day in that regard. And it's also something that, um, like a few years ago, I brought up the idea of a reliability bounty at ChaosConf um, when we first ran that conference. And I was like, hey, like, why doesn't this exist? Like, why are there, you know, bounties for security engineers? But if I'm able to detect 
a reliability vulnerability or a data loss vulnerability. Like there's no bounty program for that. Um, so yeah, it was actually really interesting. And when I talked about that, I actually got pinged from a few VPs at Amazon. They were like, that's a really good idea. Like, why doesn't that exist? So yeah, I just think, you know, we're just scratching the surface of this, you know, the, the cloud wasn't invented that long ago. Distributed systems weren't invented that long ago. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing where everything goes. I think to, to pull it back to Tyler's question, you know, where, you know, these are some of the things we've done to make it easy, but it also ties to the question on kind of selling to the financial services of the enterprise, because so much of the challenge is there's the technology piece, but there's the social aspect. And I'm sure you're well familiar with this. Just, you know, it's a cultural change. People change how they view it and what they're comfortable with, how they approach it. And so that's been a lot of a lot of what we've learned, you know, we we had our ideas from Dropbox, from Amazon, from Netflix of how to do it, but we didn't want to go out and be very prescriptive up front. You know, we wanted to learn from customers, hear their experiences, hear what was different for them. And the nice thing is we've seen some patterns that have been successful. But I would say, you know, one of the things that um, we can do a better job on and that we're working on is how do we guide these companies to know how to do the practice of chaos engineering. How do you bring it to your organization? You know, who's responsible for it? Who do you report about it to? Who, you know, who who gets held accountable if things don't work well? And how do you how do you, you know, encourage people to adopt a new technique and a new approach in a way that welcomes them and teaches them how to do it, but also, you know, sometimes you need a bit of a forcing function to hold people accountable. And so I think a lot of that people and processes and learning how to how to bring that to an organization effectively has been a place of a lot of learning and, and there's a lot of room for innovation left to come. Well, I greatly look forward to that innovation. We are starting to come toward the end of the hour. Was there anything anyone wanted to bring up? Any questions or points before we start to move toward picks? One more thing, if you'd like to join the community, we do have a Chaos Engineering Slack and there's over 4,000 engineers in there for, you know, from Google, Facebook, Dropbox, Twitter, Netflix, like all the companies um, that are, you know, really find Chaos Engineering valuable, Target, like big finance companies. So, yeah, I think that's a great place to go and uh, learn about Chaos Engineering. There's tons of people in there. There's a learning channel, so you can ask questions in there and get help. Um, you can find a mentor. We even have a jobs channel. And actually, a lot of people have got jobs practicing chaos engineering. There was recently a job advertised by Spotify. They were looking for someone to do it. So, yeah, it is a whole new field. And I think it's an exciting um, direction to take your career on. Career in, yeah. And people find that at gremlin.com slash Slack. Is that the URL? Yes, that's the URL. Gremlin.com slash Slack. All right. Well, great to have you on the show. Great to hear about this it's not really new, but a field or a field of engineering that I think is newly present in people's minds over the past few years. So thank you for what you're doing to bring attention to that and helping people. I mean, it's one of the worst feelings in the world to have something go down. And I know I think all of us have experienced this because I'm sure all of us have been on call and be standing there not knowing what to do next. Uh, because it's 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 never something that you've seen ten times before, or at least in the worst the worst moments are always when it's something you've never seen before. Yeah, yeah, and my and my heart goes out to everyone that's in that boat that feels that you know ten years of being on call gave me a lot of humility and empathy for just how difficult this job is, how many different things we have to account for, how many business constraints of moving quickly and innovating, and so it 
very much so. I, I, I feel for your face as you, as you mentioned that it's just, it reminds me of, of those first few outage calls I was on at Amazon where panic, panic at 1am in my basement, you know, logging into my laptop, VPNing in just like, hope we can figure this out quick. Right. Or you're going to have to get some coffee going. Yeah. One of the two things. Usually both. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we end each show, each picking out a couple of things that we've uh, picking out picks, things that we've found useful over the week. They can be technical. They can be non-technical. Uh, either is fine. And I will go ahead and start. So I have one pick uh, and one anti-pick. And I'll talk about the pick first. The pick is uh, Dell Computing. So I recently tweeted uh, that I started a new job at Mozilla and that I was using a Dell XPS 15 and I really liked it. Dell made a personalized video for me. They wrote a message, they had someone read it on the camera, they posted it on YouTube, thanking me for using Dell, wishing me luck on the job and mentioning my two pet bunnies who I tweet about quite a bit. So that is one of the most touching things a brand has ever done for me. And they, they've found a customer for life with that. The anti-pick, on the other hand, is aphids. I have several indoor houseplants. I have been fighting nasty, nasty aphid infections for months. And I know that ladybugs get rid of them, but I rent and I don't think my landlord wants ladybugs uh, wandering around my house or in my kitchen. Uh, so I'm trying some insecticidal, insecticidal soap, trying mixing them, trying everything I can, but oh, aphids are awful. And let's go to, uh, speaking of things that are not awful, let's go to Tyler. Uh, thank you very much, Nell. Uh, so this week I have been re resurrecting and resuscitating my home lab. And I have uh, my own Dell server here at home. And one of the things I would like to recommend for people who might not be aware of it is that there's the VMUG Advantage. And what VMUG Advantage does is it gives you the ability to have uh, a license for you know a small amount of servers, so that you can run your own home lab and pay you know orders of magnitude less for for a license for enterprise uh, software, and let you play with it, and and then you don't have to keep you know formatting your home lab every sixty days to, to uh, get past the. But you know that could be a good chaos experiment. You know what happens if I haven't got a good backup of my uh, vCenter. Um, so that's that's one thing, and kind of going with that, when you have a home lab and you are essentially trying to uh, go to an HTTPS site, uh, Chrome, which is the browser that I use most of the time, will actually prevent you from going to certain uh, sites. And they have this interesting thing that you can kind of ghost type. So some, some browsers, you'll be able to uh, click go, go there anyway. Uh, this, this is a command on Chrome that's, uh, it says that it's been since a certain version, I, I'll have to refer to the uh, the link, but essentially you type in this is unsafe and it will let you open the page. You know, you have to acknowledge that you're doing something that's unsafe, but if it's in your own home lab, it's hopefully the blast radius is small. So. Awesome. It just occurred to me with home labs, uh, children are the ultimate chaos engineers uh, when it comes to that or children chaos causers, at least yes. children and pets. Yes. Yep. Uh, Tammy, how about you? Um, I would say like my pick is um, I recently have moved house. So actually, um, I really love the Target mobile app. It has a cool feature where you can like take a picture of your room or actually it has like an AR feature. So you can say, oh, I'm thinking about using 
buying this chair and then you can actually put it into the room and it's all scaled to the right size and everything. You can actually walk around and see what it would look like. So I love that. And also they're a customer too. So I'm like always happy that they are a customer because I love Target. Like I actually really like what they um, provide as a service. My non-pick is just like the gym in general. Right now I can't walk because I was doing so many lunges and squats and I'm in a lot of pain. So that's all. But you know, like I always think actually chaos engineering is a lot like weightlifting. You need to always like try a little bit harder, push yourself a little bit more to learn and be better. So hopefully in a few days I'll feel good. But right now I'm not liking the gym. All right. Thank you. Colton, how about you? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm, we've been using the the product Cohen recently to help just organize and track the work that we're doing across the team. You know, it's been interesting as a founder to go from a team of five to 10 to 20 to 50 to 80 and how you keep everyone aligned and working on the same things. So I found that to be useful. Um, I certainly agree. Children are chaos. I have, I have five of them. They're all home from school for ski, ski week. And so my anti-pick is, is sickness, is illness. Um, it's just been lingering the last couple of weeks all around. And I, I know it's, it's obviously, we don't, we're not dealing with, uh, with it on the same scale as other people in the globe, but um, that time of the year where just everyone's not quite feeling right. You, you want to go do good work. You want to feel good and get outside. And you're just like, I'm going to take a nap. Cool. And Forney, how about you? Yeah, um, I gave this a little bit of thought and I actually I got to just default to the most recent memory I have here of something that really resonated with me. Um, I just finished the book Deep Work or uh, yeah, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, and I just I really found a lot of what he talked about to be very uh, important and very interesting just in terms of how, you know, you set aside time to do the, the more deep tasks. So not, you know, responding to email, responding to Slack, those sort of things, but really a lot of like thought work. Um, and particularly, I actually really liked the part about a time template. So, you know, charting out your sort of like optimal schedule and then trying to adhere to it. I may have making it taken it a bit too far. And, you know, I've got it like broken down into what categories it falls into and all the hours are broken out. And I showed my partner and she was like, you're out of your mind. But uh, it's been very helpful in terms of, you know, making sure that I, I have time to, to sit down and really think about the things that are important to the company, you know, especially as a co-founder CTO, having a little time to be a bit more strategic and not get so lost in the, the day-to-day shuffle has is, is been really important and really helpful for me in the recent past. Awesome. What was the name of the book again? Deep Work. It's by Cal Newport. I also really like Digital Minimalism by him as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Loved hearing about this. Loved having you. Loved the conversation. And I'm sure our listeners are going to love it too. So thank you everyone for listening and have a wonderful week. And we will be back in your ears next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.